this week on the Back Table Podcast. I find that frontal endoscopic sinus surgery for acute infection is probably the hardest thing that we do because people are trying to find the true drainage outflow pathway in a field of super swollen mucosa and then being confident that you kept it open is the tricky part. And so that's why a lot of people just do trephinations, period, because they're not 100% sure that they got that frontal open. And so there's some tricks that you can do, I think, to kind of maximize your outcomes there, because I think those cases are the highest risk for going back to the OR in three or four days when the kid's not better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a very special guest on today for a really, really important topic. I have Dr. Amanda Stapleton. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist and endoscopic sinus and skull based surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. She is the fellowship director for pediatric ENT and the director for the Center of Sinonasal and Rhinology Disorders. Her research focus is on the bacteriology of pediatric chronic sinusitis and of patients with cystic fibrosis. She's been prolific in her research contributions to pediatric rhinology and her contributions to rhinology education through the Academy. I got to know Amanda a little bit better working alongside her on our fellowship committee through ASPO, as well as on some of the ACGME milestones that we did for the ENT fellowship. It is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the show, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, good. I just want to tell you, I don't think I ever told you this, but I remember when I first started my practice a couple of years in, and we started to really want to develop a real pediatric sinus and skull-based center at Children's. And I started to look at my own patients, and then I'm like doing the literature search, and I just see Amanda Stapleton, Amanda Stapleton, Amanda Stapleton. So I knew your name, and I was like, who's Amanda Stapleton? <laughs> and then and then we got to be on the, the fellowship committee together, and I was like, okay, all right, cool, cool. And then, you know, last year, we you know, we got to do a panel together. So anyway, so it was cool to match the name with the face and then get to know you. That's been more fun. It's always funny because I always think that I'm the only person in the world that cares about pediatric rhinology. Everyone thinks that everybody just has kids who have runny noses and that's the end of the story and they'll grow out of it and, you know, move on in life. So I've always found it much more interesting than that. And trying to get other people super excited about pediatric mucus is really been hard work, <laughs> but every, we're getting a few more people on board yeah. to actually, you know, care about it. So it's been exciting to see other people develop that area and start to try and study it from a truly objective standpoint. And for me, I try and always look at what's happening in the adult world and see how it does or does not apply to kids. So I'm always looking for new ideas or new approaches to kind of how to manage these patients that roll into our office every day. Absolutely. And so just for our listeners, I mean, to tell us a little bit about yourself and your training, because you're double fellowship trained. Yeah. So I did, you know, a regular ENT fellowship, a residency. And then during residency, I had the awesome opportunity to be a part of the skull-based community at Pittsburgh, which really revolutionized how we do endoscopic sign or skull-based surgery. At the time, the fellows who were there were like, you know what, you like kids and nobody else wants to go to children's. They're like, hey, you know, you should really think about pediatric skull base. And at the time, there was no such thing as pediatric skull base. Adult guys would just go over to children's and do cases and that was it. 
I knew after making my way through residency that I really wanted peds to be my base practice, meaning the population that I take care of, but I didn't want to lose that awesome endoscopic skill set that we slowly develop over time as residents and fellows. So I did a pediatric fellowship first, and then after that did the adult endoscopic skull base fellowship so that I would have the skill set to hopefully be able to take care of these patients moving forward. That's awesome. And you're right, there's something that it's taking care of kids, even when it comes to something like skull base to the runny nose to cystic fibrosis, allergic fungalitis, whatever, chronic sinusitis, it's just a little bit different, right, than treating adults, even the way the system is or in your clinic to the hospital to how you pre-up the patient is going to be a little bit different. And so as an adult person having to come over to the children's every four to six weeks, and even if you had to reset your password, it takes a little bit. So it is nice when there is a peds person that can really understand how it works, take care of the patient, and also do the surgery and take care of the post-op. So we're going to talk today about intracranial complications of acute sinusitis. It's a good topic because there's some case series out there, there's some papers, but you know, in terms of how people practice, I think it's still a little bit variable, whether, you know, we're talking about what the role of sinus surgery is not, when to watch, if you do watch, et cetera. But before we get into all of it, tell us first how these patients usually present to you. We've all been more acutely aware of these cases because it seems like they've been rolling in more frequently over the past one to two years, kind of post-pandemic. And so at least in our practice, we even went back and looked at the data to see, hey, are we getting more orbital complications specifically of sinusitis compared to you took 18, 19, and then compared it to 21, 22? And we saw a slight uptick, maybe 5 to 10 percent more. And maybe it's just it seems like a lot when you're on call and, you know, every time you're on call, you're taking the kid to the OR for an acute complication case. But definitely this fall, you know, it really started kind of ramping up in October in our area. I'd say once or twice a week, we're taking a patient to the OR either to drain an orbital abscess or address a intracranial abscess or a frontal, you know, osteomyelitis. And so these kids frequently, unfortunately, roll in pretty sick. They roll into the ER and either one eye is swollen shut or in the case of intracranials, you really have to worry about more the systemic presentation. Kids are rolling in lethargic. Maybe they, you know, have nausea and vomiting. When we're getting to the point where they're rolling in with seizures and you're really nervous, you know, are we dealing with something really aggressive or big, whether it be a intracranial abscess versus just an epidural, a subdural? It's rare for kids to just show up in the ER with yellow stuff coming out their nose. Most of the time, it's not even that they have a bunch of sinus symptoms. Parents will say, oh, well, they had a cold last week. We got some amoxicillin from our pediatrician. They seemed okay. And then today, their eye is so swollen, they can't open it. Or I noticed that their forehead looked puffy. Or they just don't seem their, themselves. So I brought them in, and my pediatrician just told me to go to the ER. They show up in the ER. Somebody decides to get imaging on them, and then they call you. Yeah, you're right. They're usually either in the ER sick, 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 or already taken to the ICU at that point, um, and then through the scans. And by the time they've called you, the patient's already in the unit. I remember, especially my first few years out, thinking, man, we're not used to seeing kids with neurological signs and symptoms, right? Most of them will have headache, nausea, vomiting. But, you know, when you have that first kid, the child that has the dysphagia or the upper or lower extremity weakness, or it can be a little bit, it's pretty scary just because that's not in our normal symptoms, right? We have the clogged ear, the runny nose, things like that. And the other thing, like you said, with seizures, sometimes it's hard to know is this how involved intracranially, you know, those are the red flags. But sometimes it is hard to say how much of the physical exam finding is actually 
correlated with the imaging, right? Some kids look pretty good and you're like, you got a pretty big intracranial abscess in there, you know? And so sometimes the symptoms can be that scarier than sometimes the scan and vice versa. And in terms of eye swelling, do you find, a, you know, I think I found this in my clinical practice, but I think I read a case series. Do you find that your lateral orbital abscesses have a higher predilection for intracranial or do you think that that matters? Because I think I read like maybe it was like 10% of orbital complications can also have simultaneous intracranial. What do you see? Well, it really, I think, depends on age and location. You know, we see a lot of just confined orbital complications that don't have intracranial. Those tend to be the medial orbital wall subperiosteals that really aren't draining all the way back, making it to the cavernous. Or, But if you're talking about a teenage boy who's 16 and has real frontals, you know, meaning truly pneumatized sinuses and has a bad frontal acute infection that also led to the floor of that frontal sinus easily drains through the orbital kind of veins. And then does that then get you an epidural abscess posterior to that? So the medial ones I don't really see tend to truly go intracranial, but it can be like bad frontals that can start to really back up and, you know, start to spread more into the intracranial compartment. So, And you're right, it's usually that sort of, we say the adolescent males, and we say that because the frontals tend to pneumatize, right, during adolescence, they start to, you know, you have more venous supply and an easier way for spread as there's more development through whether it's through blood, direct contact, etc. But, you know, it's crazy. Every once in a while, it's not common, every once in a while have a younger kid. And so that does have some pneumatized frontals or younger kids that where it's like sphenoid, the disease is posterior a little bit. Tell me about some of those patients. Yeah, so I had a case this year of a nine-year-old who had isolated sphenoid sinusitis. I mean, all the other sinuses look beautiful on the CT scan that he rolled in with, and he rolled in with new headache. And he was a kid who never had a headache. Parents were physicians. They were very reliable in terms of symptoms. And he had a new headache that he'd never had in his life and a little family history of migraine. But it was just that it was so distinctly different than anything he had ever shown up with. And when you looked at him, he, you know, had had a cold for a week, had a history of adenoiditis, was getting a sleep study for possible sleep apnea just because he had moderate adenoids and moderate sized tonsils. And then rolls in with a cavernous sinus thrombosis from isolated sphenoid sinusitis. So, you know, and he was nine, you know, he wasn't the 16-year-old boy who sat at home for two weeks, never told anybody he had a cold, and then rolls in with a giant frontal Potts puppy tumor or something around those lines. So, Absolutely. So in terms of um, physical exam, do you do anything special? Like, are you scoping any of these kids? I mean, I know it's kind of a ridiculous question now that I ask it out loud, but um, a lot of these kids are can be young or if they have such bad headache or they are, you know, altered mental status. And also, I don't know if once you have that imaging, if putting a scope in is going to change your management. A lot of times these kids roll into the ER overnight. So the first people that tend to see them are my residents. And they do tend to scope them because they're trained to scope everybody. And we're not talking three-year-olds here. I mean, most kids tend and up can handle a bedside flex scope. No big deal. I always tell them that if you see pus, you know, culture it. Because sometimes that can be helpful, 
especially if they can tell me, yeah, you know, there's purulence coming out of the middle meatus. I cultured in the ER before he got put on his IV unison. And just to kind of move forward with being able to appropriately treat medically on top of what you'll ever, you know, eventually do surgically. Sometimes it just helps identify purulence, helps you get culture-directed swabs, and just know what you're dealing with. And then, you know, the tough ones are the ones where their nose doesn't look so bad. They're a little bit red, turbs are a little bit puffy, but they're not pouring out thick yellow-green slime. And you're like, well, I guess it all went intracranially instead of coming out your nose because, you know, your nose looks okay. It doesn't typically change my decision-making. It's more just to help with either getting a decent culture on them ahead of time before they start IV antibiotics or just know kind of the level of, you know, what we're going to have to deal with in the OR, you know, depending on how edematous they are. I agree. If you're able to get a culture, that's great. But I think once they come in with an intracranial, and again, we'll talk about the role of FES and, you know, all that in a little bit. But the other things I tend to try to get if I can is just a good eye exam, like extraoculars, eye swelling. Those things are important to me. There is a pot. How bad is, how indurated, how swollen, how big is it? So that, you know, we have a baseline and something to follow with. And I think the eye exam and the eye swelling, all that's more important to me if there is a simultaneous orbital abscess or post-septal or orbital cellulitis or preceptal, whatever we're following along, that is important to me. And then if depending on the kid's age and how with it they are, sometimes I'll get my own neuro exam, depending, you know, in terms of nothing crazy, just like grip, shoulder shrug, push on the gas type stuff, just to kind of see what's going on. Tell me about imaging. So I feel like most of the time, the kids, by the time we see them, will have the CT and an MRI. The kids that have the, you know, meningitis or encephalitis, epidural, subdural, empyemas, et cetera. When do you consider something like an MRV? And just going back to the physical exam thing, the nice thing with the eye ones is that everybody's got a camera on their phone. Either parents or my residents, we have them take a picture of the eye because then you can truly say, are you getting better on IV antibiotics or not? That part's nice because you can take a picture every you know, 12 hours and see, and you can put those in the chart. And then especially those small subperiosteals like, that you think might respond to IV antibiotics, it is really nice to try and get objective data in terms of, okay, yes, their lid was swollen shut today. Oh, it is improving. Or yes, we are getting good movement. So that's important too in terms of if you're going to take a kid to the OR or not for an orbital you know, drainage. So in terms of the imaging, a lot of times they roll into the ER and they get a CT scan, right? And whether it's a CT head or a CT max face, hopefully we're at the point now where they're ordering a max face because we're assuming that the ER is suspecting sinusitis, especially with if it's orbital swelling that they're looking at. They don't always have an MRI. There's the fast MRIs, right, that they do to make sure nothing big, bad, and ugly is happening. And sometimes if a kid rolls in with neurosymptoms, they'll do that first. But, you know, those are big cuts. They're quick scans just to kind of have a view of, is there something intracranial that we have to worry about? The only time that I get worked up about an MRV is truly if we're dealing with that kind of isolated sphenoid. Frontal disease rarely makes it all the way back to the cavernous. Can it happen? Yes. The diploic veins don't have valves, so is there a pathway that you could get from frontal all the way back? Probably. But if you have a decent MRI that's not one of the fast ones, you're probably going to be suspicious of that ahead of time. I find that MRVs are useful if, you know, like I said, we're worried about cavernous sinus thrombosis. 
you know, honestly, I use more MRBs in mastoid disease than, you know, I do sinus disease because I just feel like the incidence of sigmoid sinus thrombosis and acute mastoiditis is much higher than, you know, a frontal causing vein occlusion that then puts them on anticoagulation for, you know, six months. So, yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of the different types of intracranial complications, I do feel that an intracranial abscess is going to be do you feel like, well, I don't know, do you feel like an intracranial abscess is worse than a meningitis? Like we think of epidural, I think the better comparison would be, you know, an epidural abscess and a subdural empyema in terms of aggressiveness of the abscess itself and making the patient sicker, if you will. But do you ever think of it that way in our heads? Should we even be? Does that change how you manage the patient? So anytime that either epidural or subdural, we're obviously dealing with an aggressive bacteriology or something that has decided that it doesn't want to stay in the nose. So if it's a frontal and acute sinusitis and you have a frontal epidural, I'm less excited about those, meaning I think that, okay, you can either have direct bone extension from the frontal osteomyelitis that you're dealing with, where versus a subdural empyema, you know, it's had to break through that dural wall, make its way back through that kind of blood-brain barrier, you know, to get into the subdural space. And then it's interesting to me because I always assumed in the past that anything that went subdural or intracranial had to, you know, you had to get a crany, you know, take off the frontal, go in and drain it. And then we had a run where people were doing burr holes just to like drain the abscess. And I'm thinking to myself, is that good enough? Is that going to really clean things out so that this just doesn't refill back up? You just think, oh, well, if they just put a hole in and sucked it out, like, is that going to work? And I think that's some of the debate in the neurosurgical, you know, world is what's adequate and what's not. Once it's a true brain abscess, you know, where we are, you know, looking at an abscess and the frontal lobe is gone or pushed back or, you know, like, then obviously that kid's getting a crany, but it really depends on extent. So I kind of rate them the way they are. You know, epidurals, I don't get as worried about. Subdurals, I'm like, you know, this is pretty big. It's really pushed everything back. And wow, that's four centimeters of pus. Like that's a lot of, you know, like stuff. And then, you know, once we're hitting brain abscess, then normally it's pretty bad. And those kids, I mean, regardless, and again, we're about to talk about sort of the role of FES, but in terms of talking to the families, once it is a large epidural, subdural, or intracranial, or once it is a subdural or intracranial, that of course is indolent. It's really difficult to, you know, manage expectations, I think. It's not always a clear cut, and I don't want to say no matter what. I mean, there's definitely a range of days in the hospital for these kids, but I would say on average, you're going to, the child will be in the hospital 10 to 14 days, depending on the severity of the disease and sort of how they do. And especially once if they do end up having to go and have a neurosurgical procedure, which it's a coin toss, right? It's about 50%, depending on the clinical picture and the imaging and all that. It's a coin toss almost. In terms of, uh, before we talk about FEST, antibiotics, what do you usually recommend? I mean, I realize for most of these, I would say our infectious disease colleagues are consulted on board because these are can be polymicrobial, they're aggressive, and the child may need something longer term with IV, you know, pick or something, intravenous antibiotics for several weeks after. But um, what do you think is important in terms of antibiotic coverage? 
Definitely intracranial. I always get ID involved. And for all those reasons, you know, like once you got to the point where you got a brain abscess, you know, you're going to be on at least four to six weeks of something. Our typical teaching was always start them on unison because you're going to cover the aerobes and anaerobes that live in the nose. But sometimes, like I said, they'll broaden it just because we don't have directed antibiotics until we go to the OR. And so they put them on Vanco. You know, it's not quite the, hey, let's put them on Flagyl, Vanco, and Unison to cover every possible thing unless there was some immunocompromised state or a kid who has an underlying diagnosis that would predispose them to more aggressive infections. Honestly, most of these are strep, some version of the strep family, a strep miliare. There's all kinds of more aggressive strep that has been, you know, what we culture. Occasionally I get staph, but honestly, that doesn't seem to be my number one, you know, like thing that's growing out. So putting everybody on Vank and Unison, whether you need to or not, is I don't know that you need always need that extra coverage. But yeah, we pretty much start everybody on Unison. And you're right, it usually is that strep miliary family, though I think when we looked at our series a couple of years ago, I would say half were polymicrobial, and so some anaerobic coverage, and then ID's always very good at CNS penetration and things that I'm, I'm thankful that the ID people are there. You're like, <laughs> yes, we will do stuff excellent, thank you. You know, like okay. age, weight, how often, I, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> That's why they drain. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so now let's talk about how do you manage these patients in terms of how do you think about when is surgery indicated for you for these patients? It truly does depend on what complication we're dealing with and how stable the patient is. You know, I had one girl roll in this fall with a huge intracranial abscess and the neurosurgery team took her back to the OR that day because she was lethargic and seizing and opened her to drain this huge abscess and she was very unstable on the table. You know, they were lucky to stop her bleeding. She was so anticoagulated from the infection. I was planning on doing her nose because her frontals were the source of this, but we had to close her up and then come back three days later and do her sinus surgery because we had to get her in a better state. I mean, she had been down. She was, you know, dehydrated. She was trying to go into DIC, you know, and so we just, ha sometimes you just have to like, pick the biggest problem, whether it be the intracranial abscess or, you know, the sinus side. And so when you kind of start from the baseline, I think of acute sinusitis with a preceptal cellulitis of the eye. Those kids are the ones that I definitely sit on longer, especially if they haven't been on antibiotics or if they've only been on amoxicillin and if they're under age seven. You know, I give them a good 48 hours of IV antibiotics, check their eye exam. Optho always follows them with us and does serial eye exams. And if it's under, you know, a centimeter, most of those kids are going to resolve on their own. Once the orbital abscess gets bigger or the improvement, the swelling isn't better, I'm all about giving people a chance on IV antibiotics. But sometimes when you see the size of the abscess, you know it's not going to improve. And so I'm a more of an early surgeon than a late surgeon. And I think some of that is also comfortability with sinus surgery. Not everybody is a pediatric sinus surgeon. And so some other people that might be in your same call pool would maybe sit on things longer, see if the IV antibiotics are helping, because these are hard cases. These are swollen noses that bleed the whole time. You can't see anything. You're trying to, you know, make sure you get into the right space and drain the right abscess. And so these are the cases that my fellows always say to me, oh, I thought I was a good sinus surgeon. And then this case showed me I'm not, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. so, and I'm like, these are why you do fellowship. So I guess we could break it down by if you were talking like frontals from like a pots puffy versus, you know, a true intracranial from just a frontal sinusitis. So say you have a pots, right? And the anterior table is 
somewhat eroded, not a whole hole, but you could tell that the bone has broken down because he's got a big, you know, egg on the front. So the question with these ones are, number one, how much of the frontal do you take off? Meaning how much of that bad bone do you have to remove? Number two, can you get there through the nose? Number three, should you just do a frontal trephination and flush out the frontal and put a drain in and flush it daily? If there's an epidural behind the posterior table of that frontal, do you just treat that with an antibiotic versus having neurosurge come in and take down the whole posterior table and cranialize that kid? And so I don't cranialize kids unless the posterior table is involved, meaning that bone's already broken down. We're not talking a frontal sinus fracture here. It's not a trauma, you know, where we know that the nasal frontal recess is never going to work and that sinus is going to always be a disaster and you just need to clean it out to get it, you know, to protect the kid in the long run. I find that frontal endoscopic sinus surgery for acute infection is probably the hardest thing that we do because people are trying to find the true drainage outflow pathway in a field of super swollen mucosa and then being confident that you kept it open is the tricky part. And so that's why a lot of people just do trephinations, period, because they're not 100% sure that they got that frontal open. And so there's some tricks that you can do, I think, to kind of maximize your outcomes there, because I think those cases are the highest risk for going back to the OR in three or four days when the kid's not better, because you thought you got into that frontal, but did you really? And it's so swollen that it's still not going to drain because you're trying to expect it to drain through one millimeter of AP diameter. And so I would say if your frontal table's already injured from your pots, you do your trephination and flush from above, but you need to make sure it's going down, you know. And so you still have to do endoscopic sinus surgery. And these are the kids that you're using top of the lepi throughout the case. I mean, you really got to decongest that frontal drainage pathway. I'm not opposed to propels. I think that putting a steroid in there is fine. I'm also not opposed to oral steroids for three to five days. You know, our old teaching was that you can't give infected kids steroids because you're going to affect their ability to fight an infection. But when you actually talk to ID and ask them that, short course steroids do not stop your ability to fight an infection. And if you keep a kid on oral steroids long enough to get that frontal mucosa to decongest so that that sinus can drain, you know, and spare them three trips to the OR to keep draining the same abscess, then you did them a benefit. So, and then really keeping a drain, sometimes I just leave an angiocath in there. And then every day you can go up onto the floor and flush that. And if it's not coming out through the nose, then you know your frontal's not open. And so then you got to do something about it. So there's kind of tips, you know, or things that you can do to try and get your frontal to stay open, especially if it's already shown you that it's spreading into an epidural or a subdural and neurosurge does a burr hole, you know, to clean out the subdural. But those are, I find, the hardest cases is true kind of acute frontal sinusitis with complication. Yeah, absolutely. Does neurosurgery ever ask you not to do the steroids because of their, let's say they do have to do a crany or a burr hole from their wound healing standpoint? Is there ever that concern? I haven't had anybody ask me not to, honestly. You know, I try and give them my reasoning too. It'd be like, hey, I know you guys, even if they did a bicoronal, right, came in and did a big crany, I still think that the short course of it to keep things open and draining, supersede, you know, any wound healing concerns. I've seen a little bit more posterior table, just a little posterior table erosion type of complications. And then in terms of anterior table, I have seen some anterior table erosion as well with a large abscess, right? Like a large superior osteal abscess, the pots. 
And so usually what I've done is for the frontals, I've addressed it endoscopically and with my fingers crossed, hoping I'm A, I'm in the right nasal outflow tract, B, that it stays open because it's, like you said, it's infected, it's swollen. Even if you think you opened it up, maybe you could have potentially stripped something like, and and then, you know, the agronasi swollen. I mean, the anterior, if they have a bunch of anterior ethmoid cells that you can't always predict on the imaging, all of that can be very difficult to kind of, so, but usually I'll try to address them from below and then from above sometimes for a lot of them i've done more of like a ind meaning you know an incision at the hairline above the abscess and then maybe get into that subperiosteal pocket get the pus out and then just tunnel a penrosen and then the quite and i learned that from matt ryan he's one of our he was one of the rhinologists i got to learn a lot from actually he's one of my mentors at ut southwestern and he was like, just keep that penrose in forever, like for weeks, because, right, the bone is has osteomyelitis. It's going to potentially pass out. One of my very first cases was actually from the outpatient side. The, they were able to clear the frontals with oral antibiotics, but the child kept pussing out on her forehead. So she came in and basically we just did the IG, le- IND, left the penrose and got culture. She was on IV antibiotics. And I think her penrose stayed in for like, almost, like weeks, like four weeks type of thing until it stopped pussing out. I haven't done as many trephinations, and I don't know if that's just my limited skill set on one hand, and as well as these aren't very common either. I mean, they're, they, you know, they have their ups and upticks, and when they come in, the IPUS ones are going to come in more often. But I did know when you do leave the angiocathin, how long do you leave them in for? Well, I try at least five to seven days, you know, like I or the whole time they're in the hospital. If they're still there, like I keep it in as long as we can. It's hard to send a kid home with it, you know, just because you don't know what's happening at home, but just because it's so right in the front. <laughs> um, but mine look like unicorns straight up. It, it looks like a unicorn and <laughs> but they'll like milk it out. I mean, stuff will continue to puss out. And, you know, yeah, I guess that's my question with the Penrose is your anti-gravity there, right? You're trying to, you know, get it to come up. Yeah. So do you just have them like squeeze it or what do you do? Like kind of massage the forehead a little bit. And if there's still enough stuff there, like you might get a little bit out. You know, the, then the question I always have is when do I, when should I take this out? Because I'm like, dad, it's been like a week or two. Like, you know, like, do I wait? Should I, do I give it the solid four? In terms of getting the frontals open, are you using 30 degrees? Does that tend to help you? Do you use a big shoulder roll? What other tips do you have? Yeah, so I always use a 70 degree camera. I think it just is the best for visualization. I always use a fat scope. I never use skinny scopes on children. Everyone gets nervous because they think it's big. And I'm like, the nostril moves, guys. It's soft tissue. You're going to be able to get in there with a fat scope. And then it is important, you're right, to clean out the ethmoids. And I always tell my fellows, never let a middle turbinate stand between you and draining an abscess. And so if you can't see or you need more room or especially orbital abscesses, you know, like it is okay to take out a middle turb. We do it all the time in sinus or in skull-based surgery. You are not going to give them empty nose syndrome. The other surrounding structures will accommodate that space over time. It is okay to take out a middle turbinate. You know, I know this might be sacrilegious to some people, but it doesn't matter. You know, a middle turbinate scar over, patient had to go back, and maybe the drainage could have been drained, the abscess could have been drained better the first time, but because it was scarred over, I don't think that it allowed it to continue to drain. So, no, I've been burned by middle turbinates, both in the acute and the chronic setting. 
Yeah. It is okay to take out a middle term, either partial or total, and you know, whatever you need to see and to get where you need to go. So don't be afraid of middle term resection. Secondly, you know, so I always use a 70 looking up with a fat scope. I always use one to a thousand topical epi on pledgets with fluorescein on them so we don't inject anything. But you really have to like pack off that frontal recess, let it sit there, go back and forth if it's, you know, you're doing bilateral sides. And, you know, reverse Trendelenburg, getting the head up, warm irrigations, you know, when you're flushing, you should be using warm saline that's been shown to help with bleeding. So kind of all those like bleeding tricks that we have for the adults, you know, you need to apply to kids too, because you need to be able to visualize so that way you're in the right spot. Obviously, navigation is super helpful in this location. And this is when it's worth knowing how to work your navigation machine, because a lot of times this is like two in the morning and magically the rep's not there and nobody knows how to turn it on or get things to work. You know, making sure that you personally, as the, you know, attending surgeon knows how to troubleshoot your system of choice is really important because I think in an acute frontal, this is the time to use navigation. Have you ever used, one time I used an image guided balloon for the frontal and it helped drain some pus. Now, did it help keep the frontal open? I don't know. Was I in the right spot? I hope so, you know, based on the scan. But do you ever use anything like that? I haven't used that. There are some new systems that have augmented reality, and I have used those. And the nice thing about those systems are you can pre-plan those. So you can, like, trace out where the frontal's supposed to be. And then as you're, you know, navigating, it's almost like following a video game up through the loops to get into the right spot. And normally I do that just to train, to practice with my residents and fellows during non-acute cases, but it can be also very helpful in an acute case because you can preoperatively plan it on the CT and then, you know, it's when you're in there, it's fairly accurate. So using the technology that's out there can only help us in this situation. And so I think this is a time to really use the new options that are available for advanced level navigation. Yeah. For these cases, let's say the patient looks more stable than the initial patient you described. And, you know, let's say there is maybe like a one centimeter epidural abscess with on the, let's say it's the lateral side, just, you know, to keep it frontal pacification and some anterior ethmoid and max pacification on that side. What is your threshold for OFAS at that time? And what are your goals? I would take them. Anytime you have an intracranial complication, you know, it's coming from the sinus. You know, I'm very proactive in taking these. I know they're going to need IV antibiotics to deal with the epidural and the intracranial side, but just like an abscess on the neck or in the tonsil, if you don't get rid of the source, what would make you think that it's going to get better faster? And so I think pretty universally, I take these kids back for endoscopic sinus surgery in an acute setting, you know, like within a day or two. You know, whether you have to run in at one in the morning for that, it really just depends on if they have sequelae. If they are stable and they just have the bad imaging, I would add them on for the next day and I would do it. I agree. I think that if anything, like you said, source control is important. I think that having a bug for the IV antibiotics is very important. The question, I think we looked at our series, again, this was a couple of years ago. We tried to look at, does it affect the type of neurosurgical intervention? Like, did it make it so that maybe they... If they did get something, it was a burr hole instead of a cranny. These are limited numbers. I think it was like 25. So we found a trend, but like, what is that? How does that? Usually it's within 24, maybe 48 backs, depending on the time of day in the OR. Sometimes it's hard to get these cases in and they're not 20 minute cases like a neck IND. Like you need some time and to find that sometimes in this sort of subacute, right? It's not like it had to go at 1 a.m., but now it's turnover time at 3 
but I need that two hours before the traumas and we're down to one room, you know? And so sometimes that used to, anyways, that's a whole different conversation, but, <laughs> uh, but, but we can all relate to that one. Um, <laughs> and then how often were y'all in your surgery going together, you think? Often, honestly. And then it's always the who goes first game, right? And as you know, they like to say, you know, the brain's clean. And I'm like, but if the brain has pus in it, is it really clean? You know, like, are, are we really going from sterile to non-sterile surgeries kind of thing? And then it's like, whose room is it? And who's blocked on? You know, so. Um, those are the little, yeah. Right. Who's going first or not? And so, I mean, we have a great working relationship because we're part of a skull-based team together. So, like I said, we have a good, you know, relationship with our neurosurgery colleagues and partners. But, you know, normally I do let them do the intracranial stuff first, and then I'll do sinus afterwards. Ideally, you're doing it under one anesthetic. But again, is that six hours by the time, you know, neurosurgery goes and we go and then so you're taking up a whole OR for a whole day or a whole night, depending on when you get to start. Like I said, if it's bad enough that they're either doing a crany or burr holes are much quicker. So obviously it's easy for them to do that and then me to come in and do my sinus side. But we work in tandem a lot, especially for these kind of complications. Yeah, I agree. My colleagues at Dallas at UT at Dallas Children's were amazing. And you're right, that relationship is established. And so when it is something like this, let's just get the patient better, you know, whatever in terms of going back to the OR. So when is it ever indicated? And when have you gone back where you saw more than just gradu? That's what Romaine Johnson used to call it, just swollen tissue that looked like garbage. Right. You know, I think the first question is really, when do you re-image? And so after a surgery, when do you expect improvement or resolution? And then when you re-image, are you re-imaging MRI? Are you re-imaging CT? And then on a re-image, how much of that is blood? If you're getting a CT scan and things look opacified, well, you're like, well, that's just blood. And have you really got your 10-year-old to do his med sinus rinse for three days in the hospital to get the blood? You know, how are we managing that wound? Which is really what it is, right? We're trying to flush out a wound, especially if you just did sinus surgery and didn't do external work. I only re-image if I am worried that we're not progressing with symptom improvement. Fevers are spiking again. They're still tired and lethargic. You know, kids bounce back, right? That's why we all do pediatrics is because within a day or two, kids are like trying to be their energetic selves, right? And so if a parent's telling me, yeah, it's been two days and they're still laying around, they haven't got out of bed, you know, we had a mild fever last night, then I'm worried. Then, like I said, the bigger question is if it was an intracranial complication, then I do MRI, honestly, because I want to know, hey, is that abscess bigger or just not drained or... Because if I did a good sinus surgery, if I need to go back, I'm really just making sure that that frontal's open. We don't have to redo the whole thing. If anything, I think of it just like a nice endoscopic debridement. I'm in there cleaning out blood, getting the crust out, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you're worried that your frontal reoccluded and it's continuing to fill up, then you got to go in and modify what you did. You're right. Unless the child is deteriorating, I feel like if they have an intracranial complication, usually it's about a week later. The child is kind of doing well, that maybe neurosurgery or ICU, somebody's going to want to have another MRI. And then you're right, they're going to look opacified because we just did a bunch of stuff and it's hard to tell what is what. I don't think I've ever taken a kid back in that situation before, if clinically, if they were doing better. 
every once in a while, my colleague, uh, the neurosurgical team might say, hey, we have to go in now and address this. Do you all want to do anything? And then I'll say, sure, I'll clean out your nose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, kind of thing. All right. Yeah. Or sometimes I don't always because it just kind of depends because you're right. It, maybe it's just some blood clots. Maybe there is a little bit of pus, a little dishwater. Does going in and doing that, is that going to make or break the outcome? I don't know. And so those ones I kind of, unless it was just really bad the first time around and there's probably some more buzz. You know what I mean? I think one of that's, you're right, it, it probably is a little bit more of a, a gut feeling on that one. In terms of cavernous sinus thrombosis at Joel's institution, are y'all usually doing anticoagulation? Does Hemont get involved? What's the manage? What's the course on that? Yeah, for sure. Hematology gets on board as soon as they see it, and they pre- are pretty pro-anticoagulation. In the past, it used to be forever. I mean, I would always be like, oh, there goes six months of being on anticoagulation. And really, they do base it now on MRI. So... They'll start them, I'd say average, you're looking at six weeks to three months. These kids are getting serial MRIs to make sure they're getting flow again. Obviously, Opthos following them closely. And, you know, you have to make sure that your source of infection is gone. Not forgetting things like adenoids. You know, I know it sounds crazy, but if you have a kid who's got isolated sphenoid infection and 100% adenoids, like, is there a biofilm there that's just going to, you know, reflourish and, you know, it won't happen while they're on three IV antibiotics, but it might when they get off all that. So just making sure that you're managing the entire nose. You don't always think of that when you're dealing with acute forehead pus, but in younger patients, meaning kids under seven, it's worth keeping that on the back of your radar as well. No, I'm glad you brought that up because every once in a while, like you said, a younger kid, what's the role of adenoidectomy in the acute setting when there is a complication? and Is there a role? And when do you consider just, hey, we're going to cauterize this while we're here? If I look in the nose, you know, when we start the case, it's a kid under seven and you're dealing with like ethmoid and maxillary disease because that's basically the sinuses that they have pneumatized at that age. um, And it's an orbital complication. Then I am definitely not opposed to taking out adenoids. I've had to go back on people that have been operated on by, say, my partners and do an adenoidectomy a month later. You really got to think about source control, right? It's really, you know, what it is. And if these are the kids who have 10 colds a winter and, you know, we know that their biofilm is covered in more axilla and we need to get rid of it, like, then you got to get rid of it. So, you know, and it adds 20 minutes to the case on a case that you already spent two hours on. You might as well, you know, nip it in the bud. You know, and every once in a while you will get, and again, it's going to be a little bit more common with the IPES in terms of under seven, but you do get intracranial complications and the under seven too. And I know for like my kids, the younger ones, usually it's usually that like 18 month old that keeps getting preceptal cellulitis every six to eight weeks. When they're cooled down, then we'll go ahead and take the adenoids out. Like there's nothing else I'm going to do at that point. But I always used to kind of think about it in the back of my head, like, okay, I'm in the OR for this test because either the kid has, whether it's meningitis to, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Not preceptal abscess. Thank you. (laughs) Or a subperiosteal abscess and the child is like eight or six. Do I need to look at the adenoids in this or do I need to just, I'm there with the the bovi, should I just kind of buzz something? Like I, there is a data or literature on that. Is there, I mean, it's true. Now I feel like, okay, good. I, I, I have somebody else that, you know, also thinks about that. And then I'm like, okay. Well, we're so focused on, especially with eye, getting the abscess drained, right? You mm-hmm. know, and making sure that you take down that lamina and get, you know, the whole pocket out because those are the kids that if you don't drain it, you know, because their eye never gets better. You know, like everyone's so focused on making sure you drain that abscess. But Again, you got to really think, like you said, about source control here. And 
I'm definitely not opposed to doing an adenoid in the middle of an acute sinus surgery. So, yeah. In terms of follow-up, let's say the child gets better and they're uh, discharged. What's your follow-up like? And do you follow them long-term? I do. So I bring them in in three weeks and I check their nose. You know, in little kids, I do it with a headlight and a speculum. In older kids, I do a true nasal endoscopy and debridement. And then I really dig into the history pre-infection, right? So if this is an allergic kid who occasionally takes Zyrtec but never really had testing or, you know, management... Or, you know, if this is a teenager who this is the first time they've ever had a sinus infection. So the how long I follow them really depends on what their pre-infection history was. I do in-office allergy testing and, you know, management. And so I kind of keep them all in my rhinology clinic so that I can address their whole nose. Because that's the number one thing parents ask you, right? How did it happen? Is it going to happen again? Is every time they get a cold, do I have to worry she's going to have an orbital abscess? So... Is my reasoning of, it's just really bad luck. Is that not good enough? Because <laughs> oh, I feel like, right, we, it's otherwise healthy kids that yeah. don't really have a history. And maybe there could be like a mild, well, they have allergies. But like, mm-hmm. that is an issue. But I feel like, it's, is that not a separate issue? Well, it depends. You know, it's pretty rare, honestly, you know, that I get a kid who rolls in who's had chronic sinusitis and then gets an acute one. Because, you know, they're dealing with chronic sinusitis, not acute. These are not tonsils that have had seven streps, you know, like this is a sinonasal cavity that, and you're right. And and sometimes it is, especially that's why we've been so interested the last two years, you know, these kids haven't been sick for two and a half years. And then all of a sudden you get a strep in there and your body's like, whoa, what is this? And then just can't manage it and it moves too quick. So you're right. I, I do tell family a lot of it's bad luck. The chances of someone coming back in with a separate intracranial abscess that, you know, is two years later, you know, like kind of thing. I've never seen it. But I have had, like you said, little kids come in with a couple rounds of preceptal. And the one time it, they managed it with Augmentin, the next time they needed IV Unison, and then the third time. And so that has happened. But I haven't had kids drain abscesses that came back two years later with a second one. I haven't seen that either. And then if you do see something like that, or now they have a new mastoiditis or something like that, then immunology or somebody else needs to get involved in terms of why or a vaccine has immunization history. My question for you is, do you ever follow these kids like six to six months to a year out for any like CRS type potential complications? That's a good question. I don't. Like I said, I normally see them probably two visits after their surgery. So I see them at three weeks and then maybe I see them another six weeks after that. Just to make sure that, hey, we're off our washes by now. Yeah, we did our Flonase. We're looking better. Because when you see them at three weeks, they're still probably on IV antibiotics. So they're feeling good because they're still on systemic treatment. So you just want to make sure their nose doesn't blow back up again after, you know, you take them off all that stuff. So that's why I do a couple of visits. And then normally I don't see them yearly, you know, or, you know, stuff after that. And they tend not to come back, you know, like people come back when they have trouble, right? You know, like they'll call you and, you know, and their parents are more alert to it because of the trauma that they had from going through this, you know, process in the first time. Well, and every once in a while, if the, you know, initial neurological symptoms were something like aphasia or upper lower extremity weakness, those kids go to rehab and they do better, right? The studies have shown that their neurological symptoms, unless it's like seizures, and even that most of the time, they tend to resolve and they get better, but, and it might take a little bit of time. So it, some of these, the recovery is not, is, it can be very indolent and, and difficult and it can be very traumatic. You know, an otherwise healthy middle school kid, like it's a lot. They've missed a ton of school and 
now they have to really kind of they're weak and yeah it, it can be a lot yeah it's like a parent's worst nightmare you know yeah absolutely so i would see them back about two three weeks after discharge just a make sure they're doing the rinses making sure nothing new has collected on my exam and then usually at that i'm looking in with like a otoscope in their nose or anti rhinoscopy and then i'll see them back probably about four to six weeks after that and by then usually they'll have had a cheetah but they have an mri or something right and then at that time, depending on their symptoms and how they look, depending on age and sort of what exactly am I looking for, I might put a camera in just to kind of see. Sometimes I'll have older kids that start rinsing at three weeks and they drive me crazy because I'm like, hello, like, did you not see what just happened? Like, let, let, you know, let's make sure there's no pus and maybe they still have a headache and, and things like that. But and early on, I, I would follow them to like six months and even a year because I was like, am I, maybe I scarred them up, cause chronic sinusitis or something. And given that it was done in an acute setting. But uh, fortunately, even with scarring in the nose, knock on wood, a lot of times children are asymptomatic. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, the thing to think about, too, you're right, is the frontal, right? You know, especially in a teenager. I think ensuring that that is not scarred down. I see a lot of like inferior turbinate scar to lateral wall kind of scarring because, you know, the nose was inflamed. You scraped it up 10 times when you went in with the camera, you know, like just trying to see. So you'll see those little scar bands here and there, but, you know, is the frontal truly patent? And then, you know, I get the question from parents is, what happens when they get another cold? Are they more predisposed to having this happen because the pathway has already been created, right? So the question, especially if you, like, you know, had blow out of the posterior table or, you know, like something, you know, do I need to be more proactive? And I tell families, yes, you know, like this is not a kid that I would sit on two weeks of nasal drainage, you know, and before I see the doctor. We always tell people, oh, 10 days before you get put on an antibiotic or, you know, you got to have symptoms long enough. And I'm like, hey, if this kid starts to pour yellow-green drainage out his nose and spike a fever, you're going to do your antibiotic washes and you're going to call me or your pediatrician and we're going to start augmenting. You know, like we are not going to hang around and see if this spreads intracranially again. And, and parents are hyper aware of that because they are traumatized from what happened. And is there data to support that? I don't know. You know, I don't know that like I said, I haven't really seen anybody come back with a repeat frontal from a separate infection that's greater than six months from the original thing. But I also have people that are treated with just IV antibiotics for intracranial complications. And then those are the kids that I actually worry more about. And those are kids that actually get more imaging, right? Because we are so nervous that we didn't take them to the OR. And so do they need MRIs every six months, you know, or three months or, you know, especially in the beginning, I have one kid that they're following that has had an MRI monthly for the past three months to make sure that it has resolved. And his frontals look beautiful. But then they asked me, well, do you need to do sinus surgery on him to prevent this from happening again? And I'm like, well, your frontals look so beautiful. I'd hate to scar them up by. So those are conversations that you get too. Should you do preemptive sinus surgery if you didn't have to do it the first time, but we should do it to prevent this from happening again? And so unless there's some true anatomic like, you know, a huge auger cell or a frontal that has four cells up through and you know that frontal's never going to work or they still have residual mucosal inflammation three months after IV antibiotics, then, it, you know, it's a different story. But when your frontals look beautiful because you've been on two months of IV antibiotics and, you know, your MRIs are clear, it's hard to just say, OK, let's just decide a surgery to say we did it, you know. Yeah. And like you said, it, it could just scar it up and it, it's hard to say what the point, what are we doing? Especially if we, even if we say anecdotally, have I seen this happen in the same kid twice in the 10 years? You had mentioned antibiotic rinses. What do you put, have them put in there? 
Sure. So I do a lot of mupirocin. I know it's not awesome for getting it to solulize, you know, in there, but I definitely do it because, you know, you're dealing with staph and strep. I mean, it'd be easier if they were growing out pseudomonas like the CF kids, because then you can just get them tobermice and little vials and, you know, pour that in and it mixes better like when you do budesonide. But I do. Again, I know there's not a ton of data to show the difference between saline by itself versus saline plus mupirocin, but I figure if we can get some antibiotic up into that cavity, Awesome. I mean, when we flush out a neck abscess, we flush it with antibiotic saline. And I think of doing the same with sinus rinses. And it's not overly expensive or burdensome. And if they're already washing their nose, cool, put some antibiotic in there and rinse it through. <laughs> so, do you just tell them to like, I would just tell them to do like a dime size amount or something. And then, yeah, I tell them like half a teaspoon, just give it a good squirt, you know. And then, okay, I tell them if it still looks like a clump in the bottom, you know, you can microwave it for 10 seconds and then just wait for it to cool down before you rinse it back through. But normally, if you give it a really good shake, you can get it dissolve a little bit. No, that's a good tip. And then, do you ever do budesonide rinses in these settings? For sure. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're really worried about edema, you know, you can do both. You can put your budesonide in the bottle and your mupirocin and just double rinse. Because just telling a kid to go home with two sprays of fluticasone, you know, you know you're not getting it up into the frontal. You know, and the teenagers, they're just like, you know, I barely hit your septum, let alone get it high enough to do anything. So I think acutely for the first month afterwards, you can do budesonide and, you know, mupirocin together. I like that. We do get some pushback on covering budesonide, so that can be a pain. But I think it's worth getting topical steroid into the area. Well, we're coming up to the hour. What else am I missing, Amanda? What other pearls or lessons in your career or anything else specific to intracranial complications of acute sinusitis in children? Yeah, I think you just have to set yourself up for success operatively. When you're going to go to the OR, you have to make sure that you've got all of your tips ready to be able to see Make sure you're in the right spot, be able to control bleeding, you know, like I said, using your 70 degree scope, using a fat scope, positioning the patient appropriately, using topical epi, really, like I said, not being afraid of a middle turbinate to take it out. All those things really hopefully will make you a more successful acute sinusitis surgeon so that you can get through those challenging cases and then you don't have to bring them back in two days because you didn't really get that outflow tract as open as you needed it to. So I think those are really important from an ENT standpoint of how to manage these people. Then obviously the collaboration between your subspecialties is really important with neurosurge, ophthalmology, and infectious disease being your top three people that are always making the decisions on these kids in terms of who needs to go to the OR and how quickly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate your time. Um, I always love talking shop, if you will, with you. (laughs) Are you on any social media if our listeners wanted to reach out to you? Yeah. I mean, we have all our pit social media. We have the usual kind of Twitter and Facebook and other streaming stuff that we'll try and post this podcast on for people. Um, And we do check that. We have a pediatric pit ENT feed and we try and keep things open for people to see what we're up to. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming on today to our listeners. Thank you for stopping by. Please reach out to us if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for topics, guests, or if you ever want to come on the show. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. 
Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.